Hashem promises Avram Avinu multiple times that Israel will be the land of his people, but not all of the times does Hashem say it in the same way because there are fundamentally two stages and two different ways in which the land of Israel becomes the holy land. There are multiple times in our parasha where Hashem promises Israel to Avram and his descendants. Let's look at the different places. Tchilas parasha Nehemar originally in the parasha tells us Vayera Hashem el Avram Vayoymer they bestepiest Avram and says Lazaracho etein esaretz azois I will give this land to your descendants. And then after Avraham Avinu comes back from having been in Mitzrayim and he takes leave of Lot, then Hashem says, All the land that you can now see, I will in the future give it to you and to your seed forever. Now you should traverse the land in its length and breadth, because to you, I will in the future give it to you. Three references, the word is give, and it's in future tense. But, towards the end of the parasha, where Abishna makes the covenant with Hashem, then, Hashem's covenant is, I have, past tense, given this land to your descendants. From the Nile to the Euphrates. And then, Abishna tells which are the existing ten uh, nations that live in that land. So, the distinction between these two types of promises that Hashem gives to Avram Avinu is that is the first two occasions where Hashem promises the land, which is in future tense, not only are they stated in the future tense, they are not attached to anything that Avram Avinu had to say or do in order to receive that land. Whereas in the Brisbane Abyssarium, where Hashem speaks in past tense and says, I have already given this land to your descendants, that is after Avram Avinu has done something. He has traversed the entire area of the land of Israel. And what Eibishter is now saying to Avram is a continuation of what Hashem had previously said, that I'm giving, I'm going to give you this land to inherit, so walk the land so that you get it. So now he's walked the land and he's getting it. Plus Avram Avinu has actually said something in the interim, which is, Avram Avinu asks the Eibishter, on what basis will I know that I'm going to inherit this land? And here you have for the first time the word inheritance. So we've got the word giving versus the word inheritance. The Ragachava distinguishes between those two terms to tell us that there are two elements of giving the land of Israel to us. So the Ragachava explains why there are different expressions used here. That only by the Brisbane Abbasarim, the third time that Debishta promises them, promises Avram the land, then he says to inherit. Even Avram Avinu's question was about how do I know I'm going to inherit the land? Whereas, whereas the Ebishta previously said, I'm going to give you the land. What's the difference between giving and inheriting? There are two formats, two legal processes that the Ebishta used to give us Israel. One is as a gift, that's expressed in the future tense words or or as an inheritance, which is in the Pasuk, in the Lashen, 
further than that, not only are these two methodologies or two legal processes by which we get the land, but they actually happen at two different periods in history. It's a distinction between when Jews originally took Canaan under Yeshua's direction and when they returned to their homeland under Ezra. When it comes to the first time Yeshua took the land of Israel, that was a gift from Hashem, which the Raghav explains is Gedanekuda. It's like everything at once in a single, so to speak, dot. Call Eretz Israel, the whole land at once. Or miktas loikrum, and only having part of the land wouldn't actually count as a gift because that's how gifts work. You give a person the entire gift, you don't only give, only give them part of the gift. Whereas the second time when the Jews returned with Ezra, it was like they had inherited the land and therefore vagam miktas could even apply even if they did not get the entire land back. And that distinction between the gift versus the inheritance will help us understand the difference in language and the nature of the proposal of how Hashem promises the land to Avram originally and then how He promises at the time of the Brisbane Absorim. Let's understand what happened. Why did the Jews have to come back to the land under Ezra? Because they had been expelled from the land due to their poor behavior. That is Marumas Sati. That is something that the Ibish already alludes to when he makes the Brisbane Abbasarim with with Avraham Avinu and says this land is previously already yours. So what, why does the Ibishta give him this promise? Because he had asked the question, how do I know the land is going to be mine? Gemara tells us that for somebody of the caliber of Avram Avinu to question, how do I know that your promise is going to come true, was considered a slight on his part. And therefore that's similar to to us misbehaving and having to leave the land of Israel. In fact, you can actually see it in the nature of the Bris Ben Abbasarim that amongst other things, they informed Avraham Avin about the concept of Golos. That your children are going to, you need to know that your children are going to be foreigners in a foreign land, which refers to Golos Mitzrayim, the first of all Golios in Egypt. Which incorporates and also alludes to the Golos of the destruction of the first base Amigdash, which is particularly relevant to our conversation because then the Jews had to come back to Eretz Israel, so that's the whole point of the second giving of Israel, and of course the other Goliaths that follow. So now let's contrast the return of Jews to their homeland under Ezra to the original conquest by Yeshua, which happened the first time we as a nation ever entered Israel. That's what was alluded to in the first two promises that Hashem made to Avraham Avinu. It's not a response. Here the Abish is not answering a request that Avraham Avinu had made. It's the Abish's initiative. Just like the Abish told us to take the land for the first time of, so to speak, his initiative. Likewise, another point about this. The fact that David just says, I have previously already given this land to your descendants. We pointed out that that's something David tells Avraham Avinu only after, and so to speak, as a result of the fact that Avraham Avinu walked up and down the land. So, 
And now we're going to see something interesting. What did Avraham Avinu achieve by walking up and down the land? Says the Targum Yonason, he achieved the halachic status of a chazaka. So in order to own a piece of land, you have to establish chazaka, which means that you have rights to the land. So either you put up a fence or you change the locks if it's, let's say, a building, or you occupy the land for a period of time, or in this case, you mark the territory. So that's what Avraham Avinu does. He marks the territory, goes around, along the boundaries of Israel, and that shows that he now has the chazaka, he now has the rights to Israel. So we're now awake to the fact that in addition to conquest, there's also the principle of chazaka. Conquest is more military, chazaka is more legal, more technical, and we have to understand the difference between them. That concept of chazaka, which happens before the Brisbane Abyssarium, and therefore before Hashem promises the, that Avramavin is going to have the land and, and for his descendants like a Yerusha, so the fact that he did a chazaka is something that also occurred when the Jews went back under Ezra. How did they reclaim the land? Also in a manner of chazaka, as the Rambam says, and we're going to see a few questions about the Rambam. That's going to be the, the main concept we're going to speak about for a while. Says the Rambam, the way that the land became holy originally is because the mass of Jewish people conquered the land. But when they lost the land, so how did they get the land to be a holy land? Because they conquered it. When they lost the, the land, so in other words, they were conquered, so they lost that holiness. And those mitzvahs that are specific to Israel no longer applied in the land of Israel during the Babylonian exile. So there's no Shemitah, no Trumas, etc. Because for that period of time, it was no longer considered the holy land of Israel. And then when Ezra returned with his people and they re-sanctified the land, that time they didn't conquer the land. They did it with a legal transaction of retaking ownership of the land and showing the world that they now had the legal rights to the land. Therefore, says the Rambam, any territory that Ezra and his people retook when they went back to Israel, that became holy forever. So even if subsequently that land was taken from us by force, it still remains holy land and it still has the mitzvahs of Israel applying Shmita, Trumemeiser, etc. If that's the case, we need to understand. What's the connection between the initial conquest, where they made the holy land holy by conquering it from the Canaanites? Why is that linked to what we've already said, that the original conquest of Israel was like a gift? And what is it about Ezra's retaking the land in this legal manner of we now own the land, we've staked our claim, why is that considered similar to a Yerusha, to an inheritance. So in order to get there, we're going to look at two questions that the Kesef Mishnah asks about the Rambam's explanation. We're going to dwell on those two questions and two attempted answers before we get to the Rebbe's answer, which will give us the insight that we need in order to answer these questions. So let's first deal with the Kesef Mishnah. Again, Kesef Mishnah, two questions, two attempted answers, then the Rebbe's answer, and that will help us put it all together. The Kesef Mishnah has two questions on the Rambam. Number one, Aleph. 
אינו יודע מה כך חזוק הגודל מכך כיבוש. בעצם מה שרמב״ם אומר זה שכשאתה מכבוש את הגודל לא יכול להיות הגודל באופן אינדפנטלי, authorized us to be able to get the land. So therefore, So therefore, basically, if we conquer something, we could lose it to conquest. If we're given something with goodwill from the people who had rights to that land, well, in that case, somebody's belligerent conquest can't take that away from us. That's how the Tosis Yom Tov explains it. But it doesn't seem to fully answer the two questions raised by the, by the uh, Kesef Mishnah. Number one, the first question, which was that if you, if you have a look, why would you think Chazoka is stronger than Kibush? Let's go with the Tosef Yom Tov's argument, which is we conquered the land and then non-Jewish people conquered it from us, so their conquest overrides ours. Why would that be any different if the way we got to own the land was through the legal process of Chazoka? Still, They conquered us. Surely that's what counts. 
Kenyan the Kibbish Muhammad with Sadan Nochrim surely the fact that people came in with their armies and they overran us and they took our land. What is the logic to say that because we had the legal mechanism called Chazaka that nobody could ever take that holiness away from us? Why? You still haven't answered that. All you're saying is that Kibush versus Kibush overrides Kibush. But why doesn't it override Chazaka? Likewise, the Kesef Mishnah's second question still stands, which is, surely there was Chazaka also at the time of Yehoshua. And even in a certain element, a certain area of Israel, not only did the Jews have Chazaka, but they had areas of land that were given to them with the goodwill of the people who were currently living there. So we see that the Givonim, which was a particular tribe that lived in that area, they actually gave their cities to the Jewish people. And still the Rambam makes no distinction between, well, this part of the land could be conquered by other people because it was only taken through conquest. But that part of the land, we had a Chazaka with a full um, buy-in of the locals, and therefore they shouldn't be able to take it away from us. He doesn't say that at all. Rather, he makes a broad-based statement that once the land was conquered, the original access that we had to the land, the rights that we had to the land were cancelled, and therefore it no longer has holiness, nor does it have the requirements of the Torah that are specific to Israel. To understand this better, let's have a look a little further in terms of what the Tosis Yontav has to say. Tosis Yontav him shichsha. Ah, what about the fact you might have raised the question that if the definition of Chazaka or the strength of Chazaka is that it's something is given to you with a good will of its owner, well, isn't Hashem the owner who gave us the land the first time under Yehoshua? Because what you'll answer is, yes, you'll answer, yes, Hashem gave us the land, but He also gave us Nevi'im who promised that the time would come where we would lose the land again to conquerors. As well as our Nevi'im also promised that there would be a Persian king who happened to be Koresh who would give us the land back. So, sounds like the Tosif Yom Tov is saying, if there's a Nevoah to support an army taking our land from us, then they really could take it from us. But when the Romans came along and they took the land from us, there was no specific direct Nevoah saying that they had the rights to do so. And therefore they actually did not have the, the right to take the land from us. And we apply the principle which is you cannot actually steal land from a person. The land is still ours, still has the Kedusha of Eretz Yisrael. And it's because they don't have the backing of the Nevi'im. Beautiful explanation, except it's actually a difficult explanation to fit with the Rambam. Because whichever way you look at it, there's a logical flaw. Let's go with the thought that if people conquer our land, that removes our ownership over the land. In other words, it's a proper legal means of taking land. And what's the difference if there was a prophecy foretelling it or not? Either it's a legal process or it isn't. The actual Kenyan took place. That's what counts. And if the message is that if a person is non-Jewish trying to take the land of Israel, they cannot acquire it through war. And therefore, if they don't have, they don't have the rights to take it by war. And therefore, if they don't have a prophecy to support them, then it would be completely inappropriate for them to claim this land as theirs. Then there actually is no principle of conquest through war. 
There's only a principle of conquest through prophecy. Therefore, you'd say there's special dispensation to Nebuchadnezzar to be able to take the land, special dispensation to Koresh to be able to give us back the land, only because there was a Nebuah about them. That doesn't fit with the Rambam. The Rambam never said a word about such a thing. The Rambam says that the difference is that the first time the Jews got the land, it was through conquest, and the second time the Jews got the land, it was through the legal process of Chazaka. And that's it. Whereas the Tosef Yontov is suggesting that actually how we got the land is not the issue at hand, but it's how the, not the non-Jews got to take it from us that's the issue at hand. And therefore, in Golis Bavel, because they were endorsed by a prophecy, they could actually remove the inherent Kedusha of the land. Regardless of how, it would sound like, regardless of how we got to have the land. Because the Tosus Yontav is arguing that Nebuchadnezzar's conquest was justified. Whereas, after Ezra and, and the Jews had returned to Israel and then it was taken from them again. That was not endorsed by, by, by Nebuah and therefore was not appropriate. And therefore didn't have the power to steal away uh, the holiness from the land. And actually then it wouldn't make a difference how we got the land in the first place. It would just be that they, they didn't have the right to take it. And so therefore they can't remove the holiness from it. In other words, the Rambam is positioning it that how we got to the land makes the distinction of whether the Kedusha lasts or not. And the Tosis Yomtev is positioning it that how the nations took the land from us is what will determine whether or not it has a lasting Kedusha. So the Tosis Yomtev doesn't really solve for the Rambam. Okay, let's go back to the case of Mishnah's second question. That, yes, it's true that there was also Chazaka at the time of Yehoshua, and the, the, the uh, case of Mishnah says, surely the Chazaka that accompanied Yehoshua's military conquest should count for something. Why are we completely ignoring it? So, um, we could answer, as some of the commentators on the Rambam do, Yes, it is true that after they conquered through military means the land of Israel, they took ownership of it using the property laws of Chazaka. So the truth is that yes, Chazaka came into play, but that wasn't their intention. When they entered the land, they entered as conquerors, as Hashem had told them to. And so therefore their intention was to take the land through conquest. The fact that there's also a legal mechanism that hits after a period of time doesn't make a difference because that's not what they intended. And therefore, the Mephoshim suggests that because they didn't intend to use Chazaka, Chazaka doesn't come into play. Like the, the Gemara tells uh, well, the Halacha, that if a person invests or, or works using property that belongs to, an, uh, to a ger, thinking that the property belongs to the person, ultimately misguided thought doesn't allow a person to have access, doesn't allow a person to acquire. And so over here they have misguided thoughts. Surely that should derail their capacity to be able to acquire the land. Sounds like a nice explanation. Abel, First thing we have to ask is, is this actually a logical argument in context of what we're talking about? Because if you actually think about it, the Jews going into Israel, their intention is to take the land. Are we going to now start splitting hairs if they had in mind the correct methodology to take the land? Their intention is to acquire the land. 
And therefore, if your intention is to acquire the land, it works, regardless of which kind of intention or method you want to use. Especially considering that this is a, an acquisition which is endorsed by the Torah, which follows the laws of the Torah. But besides that, in the Kosher the Forage King Canal, besides that, it's difficult to use this explanation because let's go back to the story of the Givonim who happily handed over their land to the Jewish people. There was no war. They were happy to give their land. So surely in those cities that belonged to the Givonim, the Jews should have had rights to the land through the mechanism of Chazaka and therefore the holiness in those territories should be indefinite. And therefore the Rebbe says all of the commentary that we have looked at until now is focusing on the wrong part of this conversation. We have to distinguish between the legal rights to ownership of the land, which is one conversation, and a more spiritual conversation, which is how do you get that land to become holy? That's where there's a difference between the first and the second time the Jews came into Israel. So here's the explanation. Two things changed when Hashem gave us the land. The first is, a transaction. Who owns Israel changed. Previously it was the Canaanites who owned that territory. Now it was going to be the Jews owning the territory. Secondly, outside of the technical legal framework, Kedusha Sa'aretz is the question of, is the land holy and is it holy in the long run? So, the first question as to on what basis or at which point did we get to be the owners of Israel? That is something that First is a gift, a gift from Hashem to Avram Avinu, as described in this week's parasha. The fact that Hashem said, I have already given the land to your descendants, which tells us it's not a promise, rather it's a statement of fact, this has already happened. The land is already yours, you already have the ownership. Meaning from that point on, many generations before the Jews would physically conquer the land, the land is already ours and it's already our eternal heritage. That is in terms of ownership. You even see a practical legal application of this with Slavchad and his family. We know that Slavchot's daughters got his piece of land in Israel. But the point is, the piece of land he had as a firstborn was actually double that of his brothers. So, now the halacha is that a firstborn cannot get the double portion of something that will eventually become his in the same way as he gets, uh, or, or would, let's say, would eventually become his father's and therefore by extension his. It's not the same as something which the father already has in his possession. So, by rights, if the land of Israel was not yet property of the Jewish people, Tzlovchad would not get his double portion. The fact that he got his double portion is because Israel was already ours, even though we had never set foot there. So that's clear. The ownership of Israel happens prior to all of Hashem's promises. But the holy status of Israel, which has a direct impact on mitzvahs like Shemitah, etc. That only happens when Jews enter Israel. Only then does it become holy. So prior to the Jews entering Israel, it's our real estate. Once we enter Israel, it's our holy state. 
Now with that in mind, let's look at the two different ways in which the Jews entered Israel. The first time that they entered Israel under Yoshua, there were clear instructions which were, which were that you've got to go as the Agod, and Ruvain Gad and half of Menashe had to come armed to the teeth to lead it. And the instruction was to conquer the land. Meaning, the intention that Hashem had was that they should take the land through force. Therefore, if the land only becomes holy once we enter it, if the means of entering it has to be through force, then the only way or the time at which the land becomes holy is through force. That's how the land becomes holy. And therefore, if the instruction from Hashem is to conquer the land, the fact that there might be a legal mechanism called Chazaka that allows us ownership of the land, it has no bearing on how the land becomes holy. Even in those territories of the Givonim that were given to us on a silver platter. The way that a land which is unholy becomes holy is because Hashem tells us that that's what's going to happen and therefore we have to follow His instructions in order to achieve it. And therefore Chazoka, which was not part of the instruction that Hashem gave us on how to take the land at that point, therefore that mechanism cannot bring holiness to the land. Because Hashem's instruction forced us that we have to be in a situation that the only way in which we could enter the land, make the land holy, is through battle. Take it a step further. Look at the wording of here. The Ebesh just says, the land should be conquered by you. That means they didn't even have to conquer the entire land as soon as they took over the key city of Yerichoi, which was considered the doorway or the, the lock opening Eretz That's why the seven nations concentrated their forces in Yerichoi because they knew if they lost Yerichoi, they lost the land. As soon as they took the, the land, not the entire land, the land, the whole land becomes holy. Because the Jews have now entered Israel. They've done so through conquest. Already the whole land is holy. Why? Because the land becomes holy based on Hashem telling us to conquer. We have now conquered. The land becomes holy. Okay, there might be a limitation on certain mitzvahs. There are certain mitzvahs that you could only start to fulfill not only once the land had been conquered, but also once it had been divided between the 12 Shvatim. That's a prerequisite that is specific to those mitzvahs. It doesn't say that the land isn't holy, it just says that those mitzvahs can't yet be performed. Like, for example, Yovel, that only applies when all of the Jews are living in Israel. But there's no addition. Once we can do more mitzvahs in the land, doesn't mean the land becomes more holy. The holiness happened immediately as soon as the first conquest happened because that's what Hashem had instructed. And that will give us another explanation as to why Chazoka is irrelevant at this point of the process. Chazoka, even in those lands that were given to us willingly, that Chazoka will not be what causes the 
uh, investment of holiness into the land. Because again, you can't add holiness to a place that is already holy. So the Chazaka is of no additional value to the holiness of Israel, seeing as the holiness of Israel becomes relevant as soon as they conquer Yericho. Now, when the Jews went back with Ezra, it was completely different. There's no direct instruction from Hashem, go conquer the land. Instead, what David just said over there is, in, in Yermiyahu, I will remember you and take you back to this place. In other words, what does David want? Not that we should go back and reconquer the land. He just wants us to physically move there and to settle there. Ah, you want to move and settle? Then you use the property law mechanism for settling in a place. And therefore, how do you turn this place holy? By following whatever requirements are necessary in order to move in, to settle in, which is Chazaka. Okay, so under Yahushua, Hashem wants us to conquer. So the first conquest already makes the land holy. Under Ezra, Hashem wants us to settle. Settling is achieved through Chazaka. Therefore, the Chazaka is what makes the land holy. Now with that, that helps us go back to understand what the Kesef Mishnah asked. How does the Rambam say that if there's Kibush, it can be taken away by non-Jews, but Chazaka cannot? Let's remember, how did the land become holy under Yoshua? Because he followed the protocol that Hashem had instructed, which was conquer the land. So conquest creates, in other words, having the strength and control over the land creates the holiness. The nature of kibush is you're taking something from somebody else against their will. In other words, the Torah is recognizing that those nations currently living in Israel, before we get there, actually have rights to the Israel and that, to the land, and that's why we have to take it. And therefore, the only way we can turn this land holy is we have to overcome those people who are living there, and that's achieved through kibush, through conquest. And therefore, if another nation takes the land from us and we no longer have that authority, well, then we no longer have that right to, that, that right to holiness. So if the way it became holy was through conquest and we are now no longer conquerors, we are the conquered, there goes the holiness. Whereas the second time when the Jews returned under Ezra, tells us, there the way that they conquered the land was through Chazaka, not through force. What Chazaka indicates is not just that I'm strong enough to keep the people who own this place away, or I'm strong enough to hold on to the property for myself. Chazaka means I have rights to this property. It's actually mine. Chazaka means I own this land because I own this land. Not that I own this land because I'm stronger than you. So if the Chazaka is how they got to have the land, therefore the Kedusha they instilled in the land is a different kind of Kedusha. How does the land become holy? Because the Jews are living there. They're living in a land that by rights they own, even before Yahushua got there. And now it's their land. They're reclaiming their land. They're not ousting people and saying, we're taking your land. They're reclaiming their own land. Once you recognize that this is an inherent value, then that Kedusha can never dissipate.
to put it differently, the fact that they had the financial or the legal rights to Israel, that impacted the holiness that they invested in Israel. So therefore the principle that Israel belongs to us is something that can never be taken from us. Even when we say where do we say Golinu? It's our land, we're just not living in it. In the same way as our rights to the land can never be compromised, the holiness we instill in the land can never disappear. So what we've just explained from a legal perspective, that the two different methodologies of how they came to own the land of Israel affect how they impact the Kedusha in Israel, speaks directly to how Hasidus explains the difference between the two possibilities of how you own Israel and how that plays out in our own avoider, two different headspaces in terms of our own avoider. How does Hasidus explain the difference between Yeshua's conquest and Ezra's resettlement? Hasidus tells us under Yeshua's direction the Jewish people were like Tzadikim. Whereas when they returned under Ezra, they were much more similar to Bali Tshuva. They were at the level of Bali Tshuva. What's the difference between a Tzadik and a Bal Tshuva in terms of how they impact the world or deal or engage with the world? One of the distinctions is Tzadikim generally impact the world with a top-down impact. So in other words, they, they inspire the world or they, they bring holiness into the world. So how does a tzaddik impact or refine or elevate the world? By bombarding the world with holiness and with Torah and with goodness and, and, and awareness of Hashem. So because this is an aerial bombardment of holiness, it doesn't really shift the lower realm in a meaningful way. So therefore, at some point, the, the lower realm that was bombarded with His holiness may no longer retain it. And you see that. You see that playing out in the kind of holiness that was instilled in the land of Israel when Yeshua conquered it. How did we make Israel into a holy land? We overpowered the people who were living there. But we didn't make them turn into something holy. And they still existed and they might have scattered to other parts of the world and they, they still had some kind of representation which could one day build strength again and return and take the land back from us. Which is exactly how it is in personal service of Hashem. Let's say that a person serves the Ebesh in such a way that they are completely cut off from involvement in the physical. And therefore the person is so protected that they've never been challenged by the Yetzirah, by alternatives, by distractions. So we don't know how well this person will stand up to a challenge if they ever have to face one. The is a completely different reality. The Baal Tshuva is not somebody who is now going to infuse the world with holiness. He has a person who is stuck in the world and trying to find his way out of it. The Baal Tshuva is working with and refining and trying to elevate and, and transform the physicality, the lowliness of this world. So it should become something which is capable of engaging holiness. Ah, you're working with the lower realm and you try to translate holiness into the lower realm. Well, then the lower realm will eventually absorb it and it will be a permanent solution. 
which is exactly what applies to how we serve the Ebishter. Yeah, you've got a Balchava. Who knows what it is? He's been engaged. He's been sullied by the world. And a Balchava has possibly even fallen into the traps of things which are directly contrasted to what Hashem wants. What's a Balchava? Somebody pulled himself out of that mess and realigned themselves with Hashem. And therefore, the fact that this person has died Chuba is an indicator that Torah has become so absorbed and so real to that person. That even the fact that that person had failed and had transgressed is no longer an impediment. The person still has a connection to Hashem. That's the greatness of the Baal Chuba. The Baal Chuba has faced the test head on and is now coming back from the test stronger. Which means that this person has a connection to the Ebishta, which is consistent and unlimited. That's exactly what happened when they made the, the Eretz Yisrael holy again under Ezra. How did they come to have the land through Chazaka, through the process of taking real ownership of the land? So therefore, even though we left Eretz Yisrael, we were able to come back like a Balchuva, is able to come back to the Eibishter. And when they came back to Eretz Yisrael, it's not like they had to start from the beginning again and reconquer the world because, or, or the land because it doesn't really belong to them. Rather, they were coming back to a place where this was always ours. And now we can come back to the very first point that we raised, which is when the Ebishter refers to the initial conquest through Yoshua, he uses the expression of a gift, whereas when he speaks in the Brisbane Abbasarium about the ultimate Kedusha of Eretz Yisrael, he speaks about inheritance. One of the great differences between Yerusha and Matana is that when you inherit something, nobody can interfere with it, whereas a gift, the person could ask for the gift back or the, they could, the, the person could renege and say, I never intended to give the gift, etc. Why is that? Why is it that a Matana has its limitations? Even though the psychology of a gift is a person wouldn't have given a gift unless they felt that the other person had done something for them. So it almost feels like they're compelled to give the gift. But the bottom line of a gift is that it's not all about the greatness of the recipient, but rather it's about the, magnani- the, 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 the uh, magnanimity of the giver. And the person getting the gift has no legal claim to the gift, can't complain that they didn't get the gift. And therefore the limitations, and it's even possible for that gift to be retracted. So therefore, if the Jewish people get Eretz Yisrael in the means of a gift, that's the type of method that is relevant when Yehoshua is the person who's conquering Eretz Yisrael. Because how did the Jews take Israel at that time? Conquest. Bombardment from, a, from above. In this case, from the Abish's instruction. And that applies to the conquest of Israel as it applies to the Tzaddik managing his world. So how did we get Eretz Yisrael? Like a gift. Just like we took Eretz Yisrael because the Abishah told us to, we get Eretz Yisrael because the Abishah chose to give it to us. But not because we have any fundamental claim 
to be able to say that Israel belongs to us, not yet at that point. Mashenkin be Yerusha, inheritance is something altogether different. Because the, the, the inheritor, the heir, is related to the person who bequeaths, then he already has a relationship to that property and actually has a legal claim on that property. In fact, the ultimate expression of what inheritance is, is that the heir becomes, in a sense, the essence of the person who bequeathed to him. In other words, he almost kind of steps into the shoes of that person. It's not like a gift where this used to belong to person A and now it's transferred ownership to person B. Yerusha is that this used to belong to person A and person B has now taken the place of person A. So you're not moving the object, you're changing the subject. Therefore, this concept of inheriting the land, that was when they went back with Ezra. Where the access to the land of Israel, as the access to a person's spiritual conquests, so to speak, in, uh, in the case of Tshuva, is our own. It's real. It's mine. Which is not that I forced my way into the land or forced my way into making my life aligned with Hashem. It's actually who I am. And that's why when Hashem uses the expression of gifting, which refers to the first conquest of Israel, it's all future tense. In other words, it's something that they're just going to give you. Whereas by the Bris Ben Abbasarim, where he is now referring to the second taking of Israel under, under Ezra, there it is, past tense. Why? Because it's already yours. You're claiming something that actually belongs to you. Let's put it into these words. When we're talking about Hashem gifting us the land, that's something that was still going to happen in the future once they would conquer it under Yahushua. So they're going to take a land that isn't holy and conquer it to make it holy. Whereas the second time that they took the land of Israel, it was they're not taking the land. They're actually showing, they're expressing the fact that the land is already ours. Much like the heir doesn't take the inheritance, he just reveals the fact that that property is already his. Because the Abish already gave Eretz to our forefathers, we now inherit the land and we don't actually have to do anything in order to get it other than, of course, to go live there to enjoy it. But let's just re-emphasize what we already said before. This distinction between the degree to which or the means by which Eretz Yisrael becomes ours that is different under Yahushua and under Ezra, that only impacts how the holiness of Israel works. That the first time we conquered Israel, it's like a Debesh had given us a gift and that gift could expire. The second time we returned to Israel, we were returning to a place that is ours, it's our inheritance, and nobody could ever take it away from us. 
But that's with regards to holiness. But the concept that the legal rights to Israel belong to the Jewish people, that is always the case. We are always the absolute owners of Israel in the most perfect way. From the time that Abishra bequeathed the land of Israel to Avram Avinu and his descendants at the Brisbane, because when you make a bris, when you make a covenant, it can never change. Therefore, if that's what Abishra said, that the land legally belongs to us, it can never change. And therefore, with regards to our access or rights to Israel, it doesn't matter where we're holding. Even if we have behaved in a way that we deserve to be distant physically from Israel. Still our land. 100% our land. As the Gemara called it. That Eretz Israel is established as ours. It is our inheritance, we have Ramavinu, from all the time, right away from Avramavinu. Even though there were terrible things that happened in Jewish history in between that might have appeared to put a distance between us, it's still absolutely ours. Especially when you look at how the Rambam Paskin, so this is legal reality. The Rambam says clearly that the law is the holiness instilled in Israel when the Jews went back under Ezra can never pause. It is a holiness that, that was sanctified all the way till the time of Mashiach. Therefore, the rights that the Jewish nation has to Israel is not subject to any form of negotiation or any form of trade. Because besides the fact that the whole land of Israel, with its biblical boundaries, from the Nile to the Euphrates, is the inheritance of the general Jewish people and of every single Jew. Therefore, no individual has the rights to compromise and certainly not to surrender any piece of the land. And therefore, if anybody were to suggest that we should give away a tiny piece of Israel, it's directly against what Hashem wants. As Rashi says in the first commentary on the book of Bereshus, that it was David's choice to give us this land and therefore we dare not contravene that choice. When we stand with absolute confidence and firmness in this position, not because we think we are great and powerful people and therefore have the rights to control the land. But because it's the eternal heritage that the eternal God gave to His eternal people. If we say that with confidence, then we will successfully convey that message. And will so successfully convey the message that we'll see the fulfillment of the prophecy that the nations of the world, their leaders, will come to assist us. That the nations of the world will assist us to be able to fulfill what Hashem wants from us. And especially, even in the time of Golos, that the nations of the world will support us in our rights to Israel. 
and that that will hasten the coming of Mashiach. Then the entire Israel, even the original promised uh, territory which we have never yet owned, the land of the Kenya Kriz and Kadmoni will become the land of Israel under our jurisdiction. And then the Abishta will convert all of the nations of the world to call out to the one true God, and that should happen, literally now.